All right. Gospel of John, we've made it to the place where we're now going to talk about John the Baptist. And I think that uh, John the Baptist is potentially one of the most misunderstood characters in the gospel stories. Um, Oftentimes he gets confused with John the disciple. Uh, That's the one who's writing this gospel, John the disciple. Uh, As he writes his gospel, he refers to himself with unique words. He normally calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. And we'll get to that later. But when he refers to somebody by the name of John, he's referring to the one who we historically know as John the Baptist. Okay. So what's interesting about John the Baptist is not just his looks or what he did or his his character, but the way that chapter one explains the role of this one known as John the Baptist. So chapter one of the Gospel of John is primarily the Gospel writer introducing us to this being who he refers to primarily as the Word. And he says this Word was with God in the beginning, this Word was God, and this everything that was created was created through the Word. And this word has, Word has become the light and the life of men. And verse 14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So chapter one of the Gospel of John is primarily about Jesus. However, intermittently, all throughout chapter one, he keeps referring to this other character, this one, John the Baptist. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna walk through those references and pull them together and look and see what we might learn from John the Baptist. Now. Throughout my church experience, and maybe yours as well, I've always thought of John the Baptist as this one-off anomaly, this strange character. There's never been anyone like him. There will never be anybody else like him. And I've had a hard time personally associating myself with John the Baptist. My hope for us today is that you and I are able to see that you and I are much more like John the Baptist than we may think, that his mission is our mission. And even though he may have been a strange character, we're pretty strange too, but ultimately our lives are to serve in the pattern of John the Baptist. And that's our goal for today. All right, so we're gonna start now in uh, verse six of the Gospel of John, chapter one, with these words. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about light. Now, I'm going to start with that first phrase. There was one sent from God. Now, that phrase means that God was behind John the Baptist's existence, that he was sent by God, right? So there's, there's a foundation to be understood before we can fully understand what John was here to do. And and the the prophetic history of John the Baptist is rooted in the Old Testament. So let me just give you some references. All throughout the Old Testament, God is reiterating this promise to the nation of Israel, to the Jews, that he will one day send a Messiah to come and to rescue them from oppression and to rescue them and to even rescue them from their own sins. And there are in the Old Testament some brief references to one who will come to prepare the way for this Messiah. So like Malachi chapter four, verse five is one such prophecy. We read these words, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there's this idea that the coming day of the Lord is coming. But before it comes, 
right? God is saying through the prophet Malachi, I will send one like Elijah to prepare the way. Now, there were two ways that the the Jews typically read this prophecy. One was to think that actually Elijah was coming back. So they were on the lookout for Elijah. They thought literally that Elijah would come back and he would prepare the way for the Lord. But there was another group of people who would read these same prophecies and say, no, 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 what the scriptures mean to tell us is that one would come like Elijah. He would be similar to, he would be like Elijah. So what's interesting about John the Baptist, of course, most of you, if you like, grew up in Sunday school, you've got a mental image of what John the Baptist looked like. So the Bible describes us, him to us. Like he didn't, he never cut his hair or his beard. So straggly, long beard. He wore animal skins. He ate locusts and honey. He was a wilderness man. Now, he was a whole lot like Elijah. That's how Elijah dressed and how Elijah acted. I, I like to think in my mind that he looks something like this. So, so that's what I picture when, when I think of John the Baptist. Now, so, man, he's not even in here, is he? There he is. High five. All right. High five. He, he gets to preach in, in March, and so it'll be your turn, Jeff. So, so there's this image we have in our mind of what this Elijah character must have looked like, or not Elijah, this one like Elijah, John the Baptist, what he looked like, what he maybe smelt like, what he sounded like. And of course, with all those descriptions, you can imagine he tended to catch people's eye. But his looks was not the main thing that captured people's attention. He had a really bold message he was proclaiming. He was going around the area preaching this message, prepare, make way for the way of the Lord, repent of your sins, and be baptized. Now, what was interesting is he was actually preaching this message to the Jews, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the thing that he was saying to the Jews was this, just because you are Jewish, just because you are born in the lineage of Abraham does not mean you will go to heaven. a matter of fact, some of you will go to hell. Now, you can imagine, that is a bold, controversial message to preach to a group of people who thought that they were good with God simply because of their family heritage, right? Because they were born as a child of Abraham. They didn't really have to worry about eternity. They were going to heaven. And this was John's message. So as you can imagine, he attracted a lot of attention, both good and bad. And we'll get to that in depth in just a minute. Now, The Old Testament is not the only place we find prophecies about this John the Baptist character. Even in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, an angel appears to Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's dad, and gives him a prophecy about John. Listen to this. This starts in verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to their God to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is a prophecy spoken to John's dad before John had ever been conceived. Your wife is going to conceive and bear a son. Call him John. 
It's going to be a unique character, special character. But not special in the way that parents tend to think of their kids as special. Special from God's perspective. Why? Because this is the one who is coming who is like Elijah. He will come in the spirit of Elijah. To what? To prepare God's people and to make them ready for the Messiah. And so these prophecies are behind this this idea that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, John tells us, the gospel writer, that the primary role of John the Baptist was to be a witness, okay? And so we're somewhat familiar with witness. We typically think of the witness stand or the court of law. A witness is somebody who comes to give testimony, right, uh, that can be used as evidence in a case. But the thing about a witness is that a witness can either give affirmative testimony I know this person, they weren't there, they didn't do it, or can give critical testimony. I saw them do it, I was there, right? And so the idea of a witness from our perspective, it can go either way, either positive or negative. But the idea of this word witness is someone who gives a positive confession on behalf of somebody else, who can say, I can vouch for their character. And the second part of that means, this word also means to suffer to the point of martyrdom. So you put those two concepts together, it's the idea that you would speak a positive testimony on somebody's behalf and you would stake your life on it. That word has some weight, doesn't it? And so that's the word used to describe the role and the mission of John the Baptist, that he is to come to give a confession, a, a positive public affirmation of someone to the point that he would be willing to stake his life on it. And we'll see a few chapters later, it ends up costing him his life. He ends up getting his head chopped off for being a witness and a testament to Jesus, the Messiah. Now, John isn't the only witness that we find in the scriptures of Jesus. Matter of fact, of the 12 disciples, we know that at the end, one of them bails, Judas bails, right? So after the resurrection, the 11 who are remaining, they replace Judas with another disciple. So now we're back to 12, and these 12 become the 12 apostles, And the idea of an apostle is that they are an eyewitness. These guys were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, and they were all witnesses in the truest sense, that they affirmed the identity and the character of Christ, even if it cost them their life. Of those 12, 11 died as martyrs, preaching this message of Jesus, being a public witness and testimony that Jesus is the Son of God, 11 of them died as martyrs. The 12th one is John, the gospel writer, and he suffered greatly for his public witness. Matter of fact, at the end, they end up isolating him on an island where God sends to him this beautiful revelation that we have in our Bible. And John's actually the one who writes down revelation. Now, but here's the difference. Those 12 were witnesses on behalf of Jesus after the resurrection. John is unique in that he comes as the first witness the first public announcement of the Messiah before the resurrection, John bears witness. And before we get too deep into the character and the role of John, the gospel writer John reminds us he was not the light. Don't get carried away. He was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light. So he had a very unique role in Jesus' public ministry, but don't you dare place him under the same light as Jesus. Now, we're gonna pick this back up in verse 19. John chapter one, 19. And this is the testimony of John. So he came to give a testimony, 
Now we're going to hear it. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Well, are you a prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an account to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, this is what's really interesting about John's responses to these religious leaders, because this is who he's talking to. You have the Pharisees, and they sent a, a, a representative on their behalf to question John. So this tells us John had become so popular as a public figure, he had caught the eyes not just of the common people, but he had caught the eyes of the religious leaders. And they want to know, who in the world is this guy? Preaching repentance and baptism. Who is he? And what's interesting is how he responds to their question. Did you notice that with each response, he got shorter and shorter? Who, who are you? His first answer was what? As he stepped back from the limelight, I'm not the Christ. Well, then are you Elijah? I am not. Are you a prophet? And his last answer was simply what? No. And you already see this pattern of his desire to decrease in the spotlight in order to make way the path for the Lord. And at the end, when they finally pinned him down and said, man, tell us who you are, he just quotes scripture from Isaiah chapter 40 when he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now, two things I want to note about his response as he quotes an Old Testament prophecy about his very role here. Uh, the first thing is this, as he calls himself the voice. Okay, and I don't know how significant this is, but I think it is significant to understand that we're identified with Jesus as the word, and John is not the word, he's just simply what? The voice. He's just, he's just the one speaking, but the real word, right, is who? Christ. And so even in that description of himself through the Old Testament prophecy, he's simply saying, listen, I'm just the mouthpiece. Don't put your attention on me because you'll miss it. I am simply the voice. There's another one you need to be paying attention to, and he's the actual word. And the second thing that he points out here is that his role is to make straight the way of the Lord. He was meeting with, um, with Nick Hill, our uh, community pastor this week, and we were talking about the sermon and, and kind of walking through this, and he brought up a, just a brilliant point, and he sees this a lot in counseling, where even in the church today, we build these systems of legalism, legalism right? And we say, if you, want to be, if you want to be happy, do these things. If you want to be right with God, do these things. If you want to go to heaven, do these things. And we put these boxes up here, and we say, if you check these boxes, right, you'll be good with God. And what we end up doing, rather than making a way to the Lord, we end up making the way to the Lord difficult. And see, that's what these Pharisees were known for, the ones who were asking this question. They had heaped up rule upon rule, ritual upon ritual, and it had become this, this encumbersome system of religion that if you want to be right with God, here it is. And it was overwhelming. No one could bear the system. And so rather than making the path to the Lord straight and easy, they made it what? Incredibly difficult. Virtually impossible for the average person to be right with God. And so now this one was coming into the world to do what? To make straight the way of the Lord. 
to prepare God's people for the Messiah to lead them in a straight path to Jesus rather than a difficult, encumbered path that they were used to. So John's answer was to simply quote Isaiah 40. Now, we're going to go to verse 24. And we're going to see the motive here. We see in verse 24 that this group of of inquirers, John says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Now that phrase right now in context means that the the, the high up religious leaders sent these characters. But I want you to just to hold a mental note on that because all throughout the gospel of John, these characters are going to show back up. Sometimes he's just going to refer to them as the Jews. Sometimes he'll refer to them as the Pharisees. These were the religious leaders making it difficult to get to God, tripping people up so that they couldn't have a relationship with God. And here, John just wants us to see that the ones who are, who are really putting the fire to John the Baptist, tell us who you are, were these religious leaders. Look at verse 25. As they continued, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So, The main thing now that they want to know is, well, okay, if you're not going to tell us who you are, give us your credentials. On what authority then are you baptizing people? So to understand, baptism, the practice didn't begin with John the Baptist. Okay, that's rooted in, 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 in the Old Testament. It's rooted in Judaism. And it was primarily a practice used when a Gentile converted to Judaism. So if you had a Gentile who said, well, it really stinks that I'm not one of God's chosen people. How do I get right with God? The Jews had kind of created this pathway, and part of the pathway as they converted from Gentile to Jew was to be baptized, symbolizing their conversion into Judaism. And so this was, a, this was a practice that had been around for a while. And so what John was doing is he's taking this practice now, and he was going out publicly preaching to the Jews, saying what? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And for the Jews, you can imagine, they're like, wait, 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 why are you calling us to be baptized? We're already Jews. We're already in God's family. Why do we need to be baptized? And so you can see now why this was such a big deal to the Pharisees. On what credentials are you baptizing God's people? And ultimately what John was saying is it doesn't matter who you're related to. We all need a conversion, right? We all need to cross the threshold from lost to saved. You know, this, this, I, this is not just an Old Testament thing either. You see it in the church today, talking with people right, about their, their Christianity, their faith in Christ, and what, how, do you, how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, because, I, man, I go to church every day. I've been going to church since I was a little boy. Do you know that going to church since you were a little boy does not get you into heaven? I was speaking with a young man yesterday, sophomore in high school, told me, listen, I've been going to church my whole life since I was a little boy. Just recently, I quit believing in God, and I walked away from the church, and I'm now an atheist. Just going to church doesn't save you. Amen. Yeah, but my parents, like, they were there every time the doors were open. Like, they served in, in the nursery, and they were greeters, and they cooked meals, and they, like, they, man, they were big time in the church. Listen, 
Your parents, like I hope if that's true, they were doing that because of their love for Jesus. And I hope they passed that love of Jesus on to you. But what your parents did for God does not save you. What your grandparents, my grandparents, they helped start that church. There is a plaque on the wall with their name on it. Now, I hope your grandparents, if they did that, they did it out of their love for Jesus, and I hope more than that, they passed that love of Jesus on to you. But what your grandparents did does not save you. Amen. It's what you do with Jesus. Amen. And this is what John was preaching to the Jews. Just because you're related to Abraham does not get you into heaven. Amen. You need a conversion. You need a savior. And so baptism was this outward symbol of what everybody needed, both the Jews and the Gentiles. And these guys were ticked off. On what credentials do you think you have and what authority do you think you have to be baptizing? And I love John's answer. Remember his previous answers? He's kind of stepping out of the spotlight. I am not the Christ. I am not. No. And now his response is so simple. He says two things mainly. I baptize with water. You're right. That's what I'm doing. But let me tell you something. Among you stands one you do not know. That is a direct reference to Jesus. And keep in mind, at this point in time, more than likely, John the Baptist had not laid his eyes on Jesus yet. He just knew Jesus was in the world. He just knew that the word had become flesh, right? Remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about how the word, um, right, was not, he was not received by the world, and he came to his own, and they didn't receive him. And so here is a direct conflict where John's saying, you're his own, and you don't even know he's in the world. Messiah's here. So he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And then listen to this. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. There was no more humble phrase that John could have offered up than that. That is description of what a slave would do in the household. Untie the sandals of the master. It was the dirtiest of jobs, the lowest of jobs. And what John was saying, not only is the Messiah in the world, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals, to be his slave. And we see John completely step out of the spotlight at that moment. You guys have the wrong person. I know who you're looking for, but I'm not him. I have simply come to do what? Prepare the way for him. Amen. And this became John's mission. Now, I want to read 29 through 34, and then we're going to come back in, in a minute and talk about John's message and his mission a little bit more um, distinctly. But what I need us to understand is like John's mission is not different from the mission of the church. Amen. So like think about like our worship team. Man, aren't they doing an amazing job? But you know what? If all they do is come in here and take the spotlight and put it on themselves and you leave here thinking, man, they were good, you know that they completely failed their mission? Their job is to come in here, use the gifts God gave them with excellence, grab your attention, and then point it somewhere else. Point it somewhere better, right? Sing about a God eternal. Sing about Christ who has come and to take our attention and point it somewhere else. You know, that's the role of the pastor as well to do everything within his strength and power and gifting to grab your attention and right as soon as he has it, do what with it? Point it somewhere else. Amen. Like if you just leave here today thinking, man, that was a great sermon. You've missed it. Amen. I failed you. 
Like my job is to take your attention and the spotlight you want to give and point it somewhere worthy. And trust me, I am not him. Just like John, I am not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus, let alone share the spotlight with him. And so this was what John was saying. Now in verse 29, what we're about to read is a summary of, of the baptism of Jesus. And the Gospel of Matthew goes into a lot more detail than what John is going to go into here. But essentially, he's summarizing the moment. Let me just give you the context. John the Baptist is out at the river. He's preaching. He's baptizing. And Jesus approaches him, and he sees the Messiah for the first time. This is where Jesus comes to John and said, hey, it's time for me to be baptized. And John's first response was, whoa, I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, listen, this is the way my father wants it, so it's the way it's going to go down. You're going to baptize me. John baptizes Jesus, right? And then we hear this voice from heaven saying what? That's my son in whom I am well pleased. And so now we're going to read about that and John's role in that. So in verse 29, now I just got to build this up even more. I don't think we're going to feel the fullness of this. Let's do this some more. So for every little Jewish boy and girl. They were taught from a very young age that any generation could be the generation that the Messiah would come. So they were, they were taught to, to live with expectation. They were taught what the Messiah would look like, what the Messiah would do. So every generation thought, maybe it'll be our generation. You can see the little boys and girls in class learning all this, looking at each other like, are you the Messiah? Nope, you just pulled her hair. You're not the Messiah. Maybe, maybe you're the Messiah. Nope. You just took my Beyblades from me last night. You're not the Messiah. So you could just like, but they had this expectation. Any other person could be him. And right now, and the older they got, the more that expectation waned and hope gave way. I guess it's not going to be our generation. Maybe it'll be the next. So keep that in mind now as Jesus approaches John. Now, now we're ready to read it. So the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like, I don't care what translation you're reading from, there, there has to be an exclamation point at the end of that sentence. He is making an announcement, right? With all of his public popularity, all the spotlight that had been poured on him. Like, this is the moment where he says, listen, that's him. That's the one whom I'm preparing the way for. That's the one who walks among you. That's the one whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. That's him. Amen. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. That was his job, right? His mission. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John says, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Amen. And listen, 
and I will stake my life upon it. This is the role of the witness. This is the role of the voice. The one who calls from the, from the wilderness, make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And we see here in John's announcement, that's him. That's the Lamb of God. Now that title he gives to him is so unique and so powerful. He could have chosen a lot of other words or phrases to describe the Messiah. He could have said, there he is, the son of David, because that was a phrase used to describe the coming Messiah. He could have said, there he is, the son of Abraham. There he is, the son of man. These were all phrases used to describe the coming Messiah, but he chooses this one. There he is, the Lamb of God. When we hear that phrase, it makes me think of stories from the Old Testament, like Genesis 22, when, when Abraham is up on the mountain with Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice, and at the last minute, God says, stop, don't kill the boy. Look right over there, I provided a ram, caught in the thicket, kill that instead. And the ram becomes the substitute sacrifice for Isaac. It reminds me of the Levitical sacrifices of, in the book of Leviticus, chapters one through five, where the priest goes into the temple year after year, butchering these animals and offering them up and offering up their blood on behalf of the sins of the people. It reminds me of the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus, right? The last of the plagues where God sends the death angel to sweep through Egypt and to take the firstborn among all the people and all the animals and only the households that were protected. Protected by what? The blood of the lamb the precious lamb that had been sacrificed and the blood had been sprinkled over the doorposts, those were the households who were spared. It makes me think of Isaiah 53, the lamb that will be led to the slaughter, who before his shearers is silent, but upon his shoulders will be borne the sins of the world, and by his stripes we will be healed. It also makes me think of the book of Revelation. You know, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to over 30 times as a lamb. Over and over. There aren't even 30 chapters in Revelation. Jesus is referred to as the lamb. Book of Revelation chapter five, here's one of those occasions. The, the scene is the throne room of heaven. There's the throne. These angelic creatures are swirling around the throne singing praises to God. There are elders there. The elders are bowing down in worship before the throne. But then there's this, there's this, this sense of like desperation that emerges because there's this scroll and nobody is worthy to open it. And so there's this weeping now and there's this lamenting like, we want to know what's in the scroll, but we can't find anybody who can, who can open it. And the elders are looking at themselves like, can you open it? I can't open it. Right? The angelic creatures can't open it. And then there's this moment, this aha moment, where one is found who is worthy to unlock the scroll from Revelation chapter five, verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus, the lamb who was slain, was the only one found who was worthy to unlock that scroll. Amen. And so this lamb of God became the lamb who was slain. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10 talks about the Old Testament lambs that were killed. 
The first part of chapter 10 in Hebrews talks about how the priests would go into the temple year after year and offer up these animals as a sacrifice, but there was this dilemma. The dilemma was this. The blood of the lamb, the blood of these animals, never did anything to change the human condition. We needed a heart change. What was dead in us needed to come alive. We needed a rebirth. We needed to be born again on the inside, and the blood of animals never fixed the human, the human condition. And so later on in that chapter of Hebrews 10, look at how the author points to Jesus. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Who is that verse about? If you are here today and you're a Christian, that's about you. It is the blood of the lamb that saves you, the blood of the lamb that sanctifies you. And listen, not just any lamb, one lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, the second part of, of verse 7, he says this, he says, for Christ, the Messiah, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So for the nation of Israel, right, the ones who, whose eyes were open to see Jesus as the lamb of God, they looked upon Jesus and said, that is him. That is our final sacrifice for our sins. The Lamb of God became the Lamb who was slain in order to perfect and to make holy those who believe upon his name. And listen, John the Baptist's mission was to introduce the world to him, to make straight the path to him, to call people to repent and to be baptized. Why? To make their hearts ready to receive the Messiah. Now let me just talk to you for a minute about your mission. Remember earlier I said at the end, I want to make sure that you and I realize that we're a whole lot more like John the Baptist than we first realized. What's your mission in life? What have you been called to bear witness to? And there's a reality that you may or may not be aware of. Every human being in this room is bearing witness to something. And what I mean by that is what matters to you is obvious to the people around you. What you love the most is obvious to the people who spend time with you. It doesn't matter what you say with your words, right? Because your actions will reveal what's really inside your heart. So you can say, I'm a devoted Christian, I love Jesus more than anything, but my, if my actions don't align with that, it's not true. Amen. Right, and so all of our lives are bearing witness to something. Maybe your life is bearing witness to how much your career means to you. And the people around you know that because of the sacrifices you make and how much you talk about it. Just throwing it up there for you to think about. Maybe, maybe you're bearing witness to your children. This is a strange thought. Maybe your children mean too much to you. Hey, listen, you can love something good too much. How do you know? Because it consumes you. You idolize it, right? You, you spend all your time talking about it and thinking about it, whatever it is. Maybe it's your possessions. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe, and for most of us it's this, it's what people think about us. It's okay for people to like you, but it's, it becomes devastating when you want it too much. 
to where you begin to conform to what you think other people want from you because you want their attention, you want their affection. And so your life bears witness to that. Every human being in this room is bearing witness to something. And so that's the question. What is your life bearing witness to? And one last verse I want you to hear. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Doesn't that sound kind of like John the Baptist? What I preach is not myself, but Jesus. I'm just a servant. And yet this verse is not about John the Baptist. Who's it about? It's about the church. This is God's mission for the church. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So I don't know what you have been, two things, relying on to get you into heaven. But if it's anything less than your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, you're, you're short. I just got to be honest with you. You're going to fall short. Your Sunday school attendance won't get there. What your parents did, what your grandparents did, how often you serve in kids' ministry will not get you into heaven. It is only your faith in Jesus as the Son of God. Okay? The second part of that is, I also don't know fully what your life is bearing witness to, but I want to encourage you. I'm actually going to just, just ask you to spend some time today thinking about that. Before you quickly dismiss that question, thinking, I'm good. My life's all about Jesus. Would you just with me spend some time in reflection today? thinking about John's, right, his, heart, his angst of his heart. Like, don't make this about me, make it about Christ. I just want you to think about your own life. Does your life parallel John the Baptist? Or are you continually stepping into the spotlight, making it about you? And so I wanna give you some time to do that. So we're gonna pray together. Our worship team's gonna come up. Um, our prayer partners uh, are gonna come forward. They'll be honored to pray with you about anything going on in your life, anything that God's put on your heart, anything you're wrestling with. I mean, anything. I prayed with somebody in the last service because she was struggling to stay awake in church. Like, if that's what you're struggling with today, seriously, like if there's a physical ailment going on or something's keeping you and it's interrupting your relationship with the Lord, like, let us pray with you about that. Whatever God's doing, I hope that you'll respond. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this reminder through John the Baptist of what our purpose on earth is, God. We get so consumed and caught up with earthly things going here, going there, what this person thinks about me, what that th person thinks about me, this job, this career. And Father, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. All these things will burn up. God, only what we do with Jesus will remain. So Father, I pray that our mission as a church, as the people of God, could be the same mission that John the Baptist had to proclaim Christ and make him known. Maybe somebody here today has not trusted in Jesus as their savior and their Lord and their king, and I pray today they would do that. Take that step of faith. Trust in Jesus. So I thank you for using the gospel of John to open our eyes to see and to behold the glory of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We pray all this in his name.